Um, I do the work that I do in the LGBTQ2S community is pretty low key, but yeah, it it covers a few areas. Okay, fantastic. All right, uh, welcome everybody to another episode of the Gents Talk series here with Tommy Smythe. Welcome. Thank you so much. Thanks it's for coming in. Thank you. We're we're really excited to have a conversation with you. You are one of the premier faces for interior design. Well, yeah, aging faces. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've had uh, about 25 years in that community and in that culture, both on the private interior design uh, client side and also in lifestyle media. Okay. So it's kind of been a dual career or really like a main career with a big fat side hustle of media work, one of which pays and one of which pays for the other. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So, okay, maybe walk us through, for those who don't know you, walk us through your career, how you got started, and then sort of some of the work that you're doing now. Yeah, like the quick version of it is I, you know, I was working as a waiter in the revolving restaurant at CN Tower, um, work that directly informs every single thing I do to this day in my interior design career, because I think everybody, like, mandatory military military service in France, everybody should be a server. <laughs> Because it just teaches you so many things, how to manage a list, how to turn a bad experience into a good one. Um, you know, all kinds of like getting in the weeds and getting out of the weeds. There's just so much to learn from that. So I was doing that job. And while I was doing that job, because it was the CN Tower, we were doing like 800 lunches and 1,000 dinners every day on a double shift in the summer. And so I was making more money, cash money, than a whole bunch of friends that I had who were articling at law firms at King & Bay or working on like big resume jobs. So I was using that money to travel extensively and also to feather my nest. So I had this amazing top floor, one room apartment with beams and old floors and a skylight window that opened up so you could smoke out of it. And <laughs> I had so many people come in and out of that apartment um, that asked me, you know, like, whoa, how did you do this? And it just came so naturally to me that, you know, and then eventually people started to say, can you help me? So I thought to myself, you know, how could I actually, my grandmother had been an interior designer. I grew up in her houses and they were always evolving and changing. And so I knew a little bit about it being a job. Um, and I thought, how do I do that? How do I transition from what I'm doing without actually losing time and without going to school? Because I didn't have any patience for that aspect of it at the time. I was like in my late 20s. So I went to a store that I knew that I loved more than any other store in the city. And it was run by a man named Yusuf Hasbani. It's called L'Atelier. Designers from all over North America used to go to that store. And I got a job with him and I said, I want to learn from you. This is not a lifetime position for me. I, will, I, w I want to learn as much as I can and move on. I always prefaced the whole thing with that. And the relationship was colored by that. So he took me on and I met everybody in the business while I worked there. And he was a tough boss. And I learned a lot. And then one day, uh, Sarah Richardson came in, and we knew each other socially and for a few years. And then she was starting to get into television a little bit. And she had a thriving interior design practice. And she said, um, I know that you're always kind of considering what your next move is going to be from here. Would you consider coming and working with me? So I did. Uh, and then we did like 20 years, almost 20 years, 19 years together. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, we had a breakup. And then I started my own firm after I left her firm uh, with a couple of friends um, and colleagues who had also formerly worked there. So now we have our own business, which is called Tom Interior Design Studio. 
And it's a very new kind of interior design business. It's a concept that we kind of, I don't know if we invented it, but it was something we felt really strongly about. So it's more of a, um, almost like a, I often describe it as kind of like a, a co-op um, or a co-working space where, uh, you know, we have infrastructure. So all your client billing and everything is done, but everybody at a lead design level within our organization has their own portfolio of clients. So you can kind of almost run your own business within the business, but not have to worry about, like a lot of people I know who run small interior design practices spend 50% of their time doing the taxes, the client invoicing, payroll, and all that junk. All the administrative burden. All the shitty stuff that nobody wants to do. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, we kind of thought if we can provide the infrastructure for all the shitty stuff, then we could probably bring in incredibly creative people, have us all in the same environment so we can really, you know, bounce ideas off each other and have a creative hive but also get the best out of those people for their clients, which ultimately is what being in the service industry is all about, which brings us back to waitering. You know, we're in the service industry, just like servers in restaurants. There's no difference really in terms of what you're trying to provide the client. Wow. So that's me in a nutshell. That's the career. <laughs> I mean, there's a big nutshell. Sorry, that was like a 20-minute nutshell. <laughs> <laughs> so what was it like going off on your own? I know that you said you were in the industry for a while and you have, you know, like, you know, the people, you know, the business, mm-hmm. but going out on your own is, is its own beast. So the, the best way, the best advice I can give to people who are thinking about going out on their own is don't go out on your own. Like I didn't really, it seems like I did, but I have two partners, two equal partners in my business, Kate Stewart and Lindsay Menz. And we created this business together. So we're all three equal partners in terms of our the leadership that we provide and the infrastructure that we run for the other designers that work with us. But on a sort of like top tier lead design level, there are several others that work with us who just benefit from that infrastructure and from those um, systems that we've put in place. So I've never really been alone um, or on my own in the business, but I have observed that people who are don't love it. And so that's why why we created the business in the way that we did. Mm -hmm. Why do you find people don't love it? Because creative people tend to not enjoy the day-to-day mundane aspects of running a business. All of that administrative stuff, all the financial stuff. Um, You know, the business is really about managing people's expectations and timelines and budgets, but it's also hugely creative. And for you to be able to have that freedom to be creative, you really have to, I think, you know, you have to be able to be with other people and not work in a bubble. And you have to eliminate those really sort of onerous aspects of what running a small business is. So we just have we have a wonderful person named Melissa who has people who help her. And we check in, you know, like several times a week. You know, every once in a while I'll call Melissa and say, how much money is there? And she'll tell me, I'll go, oh my God, that's awesome. And she'll say, None of it is yours. You can't spend a dime of it. We're growing a business here. It's not It's not your money. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah. So you you get to the point where now you're, you, you know, you're running your own shop with your partners and everything. Mm-hmm. Is there something that, like, is there a lesson that you've learned that still lives with you from that transition? Yeah. Um, I think that, that the lesson is, you know, it, it was a, as I've said, it's, it was a tough breakup. Um, a lot was learned, I think, um, certainly by us. And I think, you know, the hardest lesson to come to because there was so much pain involved was that these 
actually are, and it sounds so trite, it sounds so like, you know, talk show, 80s, 90s talk show, but these are opportunities to learn from and to do better from afterwards. So we took everything that we felt that we didn't agree with from where we were and tried to make something new that would not only sort of fix that for us, but maybe fix it for other people and maybe do things our own way. But it took me a really long time to come to that, like, whoa, this was an opportunity. You know, it just sounds so like, ugh, you know, I hate it, like self-help book. But, you know, it really is true when you can, if you can navigate those rough waters and get through a painful experience, start something new, which is also really hard. We started our business two weeks before the first lockdown. That is not something I recommend. <laughs> yeah, well. Um, and that was not our choice. You know, like we were somewhere, yeah. there was a bad breakup, we left, then we were like, holy shit, what are we going to do now? Came back together again, started this thing, started to get a little bit excited about it, and then Rona. Yeah. So it was like, okay. So we were down, then we got kicked again. And there was a long journey of about a year and a half before we got to a point where we could actually step back and say, well, you know what? We're better off where we are and we're better off doing this than we were doing that. But it takes a really long time to find that perspective in your own experience because your own experience is so immediate and it can be so emotional and so painful. And then you layer on top of that a global pandemic and you have yourself a category five shit show. I like that you know? category five shit show. <laughs> we were talking about business and friendships. I know you were um, really good friends. Did the, Was a breakup both? Or does a breakup business always mean to you? Does does can you break? Sorry, can you have a break up your business and still have that friendship, or does it leave to? I think that's so case specific. Okay. Um, in my case, no. Um, and and that was the biggest part of yeah. it. I think you know on both sides. I'm sure um, was that there was nothing salvageable. Like it was, you know, it was nuclear. Uh, but. You know, at the end of the day, I think everybody is probably better off. And though it took a really long time to get to that perspective, I think it's fair and it's true. And, you know, it is where we are and where we are doesn't suck. You know, I thought that it would, yeah. you know, for many years, I thought, holy shit, especially if in the myself, moment, what would I do? You know, um, and could I, you know, and so uh, it's all good. Yeah. It all ev everything works out in the end. Isn't that amazing? Like, doesn't it always? Sometimes the cliches are, <laughs> yeah. you know. I remember Cher once said, "Oh, now it's getting gay." Cher, <laughs> Cher, who's always good for a soundbite, said, "You know, we have cliches because they always hold true. Yeah. That's what makes yeah. them cliches." Yeah, it's true. And she's uh, she's right about that and about a whole lot of other stuff. <laughs> okay, so was there, you know, and without necessarily, you don't have to get into details, but I mean, if you want to, we won't stop you. But was there something specific that you can take from how that relationship deteriorated and that is now a red flag going forward? That no. if you spot that in a relationship going forward, you can see something coming? No, but it's a great question because, you know, you have to come out of an experience like that whole and you have to go into your life feeling complete and in order to do that, you actually have to get to a point where you just wish that other person well. And you also have to move forward in life. I, for me, I can only speak for myself because, you know, I'm here and you asked me the question. <laughs> but I, I can tell you with my whole heart and my whole head that 
I need to move forward in my life trusting people. And so I can't I I can't spend my time and my and my energy looking for red flags. I never did and I never will. Um I worried for a time while I was going through this emotional, you know, thing that I would lose that. Um and it was a big fear of mine that I would lose my ability to trust other people because I think at a human level it's probably one of the most important character elements that we have as people is our ability to trust. And as that ability to trust is stripped away over time and experience and age and things like global pandemics and politics and governments and all the things that chip away, it's death by a thousand cuts, isn't it? Um, You have to hold on to this ability to look at each new relationship. Like I just met you guys. I'm trusting you to to deliver my story to your audience in a way that if I was constantly looking for red flags, I wouldn't be sitting at this table with you. Mm. So it's very important to me that I move forward in my life, wishing everyone who in my past well, and knowing that the next relationships that I have will be trusting at the outset until they're not. And if they're not, it's okay because guess what? I recovered, you know, I'm okay. Only that trusting in personal relationships too, or is that business or both? Everything. Business. So Arlene Dickinson, mm-hmm. you know who that is, mm-hmm. uh, one of the dragons. Mm. I did some work for her um, a while ago. We became friends and I was in a meeting with her. This is a great story. I was in a meeting with her um, about her landscaping at, at her home. And she said, I'm so sorry, I have to take a call. And I said, no, no, go ahead. It's fine. So she left us at the table and she came back to the table and she said, yeah, that was a tough one. I, I just had to and that call with a little bit of advice that I will pass along to you. And I said, what was that? And I could tell that she was kind of like miffed. And she said, you know, don't ever let somebody say to you, listen, it's business. It's not personal because business is people. And she said, that guy on the phone tried to say to me, Arlene, don't take this personally. It's just business. And I'm like, what are we? Are we things or are we people? Business is people. And I never forgot that. So, yeah, in my business, um, the way I conduct my business with people, I try to remember what Arlene said, because I think it's really critically important that you treat people like human beings and not like assets or, you know, entities or things. Um, Companies and corporations, we've all seen how slippery a slope that is. For me personally, I don't want to go there. I want to deal with people. You know, I love people and business is people. Incredible. I couldn't agree with you more. We had a conversation recently about business and friendships and where you draw the line. And Mm. I I said something very similar where you can't, the concept of, you know, I'm going to treat you poorly in business. And then it's as if nothing happened. We can go for drinks or something afterwards to me can't exist. It's, you know, you treat me the way you treat me in business. If you treat me poorly that way. It's only a matter of time before you treat me that way in our personal relationship as well. Yeah, it's the same thing with anything, really. Like, if you hurt me, then why would I walk away from that hurt without anything in terms of, like, a little bit of a lesson? And, you know, that's why it's important to to treat people nicely in business in your work life. Because it comes back to you for sure, but it also protects you in many ways, I think. So let's move to the TV personality side. Oh, yeah. I'm always very curious about Tommy this. with the bow tie. <laughs> Tommy with the bow tie. <laughs> um, how do you keep it up? 
every time because it requires an amount of energy and it doesn't matter what happened right before they start rolling. Yeah, it, that's a great question. Um, I don't know how, it, how that works because it's alchemy. Um, and it's a skill that you, I think, either have or don't have. And that's why television producers are always looking for people who can deliver um, on that promise. And not everybody can. And there's a certain thing that you either have or you don't that you bring to the table, you know, and there's also a courage factor, you know, when, when you have the courage to go into something as your most authentic self, you know, I was one of the first people, maybe the first person in lifestyle television who was openly gay and talked about it on camera. And I have to credit, you know, Michael Preeny and Sarah Richardson, who were the co-producers of those shows for giving me the space to do that. But I also, you know, would I'd be remiss in if I didn't say that there was vitriol that came from that and there was hard things that came from that. So there's that element of courage, putting yourself out there in the public realm and you do get feedback. Mm. I'm doing air quotes for people who are just listening, not watching. <laughs> um, feedback, you know, can be really vicious um, and it can also be really wonderful. So I don't know what it is, but there is a, an element of courage involved. I've done different kinds of TV shows, you know, documentary style TV shows, scripted TV shows. Um, when I did Where Do I Do for Bell Media, which is a wedding venues show, um, I would come in in the morning and my producer would give me my information and I'd have to memorize it and regurgitate that information in a matter of like a half an hour. Did I know before I signed that contract to do that show that I could do that? No. Um, and I thought, you know, I hope I can do that. And she was like, you can do it. You'll be fine. And I was like, okay, I'm glad you know that because I really don't. <laughs> but it turned out I was good at it. And and so, you know, I think you have to listen to your inner voice a little bit. And you have to have the courage to be as authentic as possible because living a lie in the public realm, um, I, th I think we've all seen how that ends. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, we're very good. Yeah, no, ask, we're very good. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's a few people you could ask about that and get a whole <laughs> other podcast out of it. So, we... The point that you make about, you know, you, you're you openly gay on TV mm -hmm. and the feedback, how did you respond to those? I don't usually respond. Okay. Um, but you, but you hear negative, them. Or... Positive I respond to because I think that you owe it to people to receive that with joy and, and, and with gratitude. Um, I don't think you owe it to anybody who's throwing vitriol your way to receive that with anything other than total, you know, uh, silence. Um, because the thing about trolls is that they're looking for a fight. They're spoiling for a fight. And so the minute you engage most people, and again, you know, there's a quality that comes with living a life in the public realm and in media that is about knowing how to read the room. So I'm not saying I never respond. Sometimes I do respond. If I feel that I can have an effect if there's a germ of something or a kernel of something in the message that I've read that makes me feel as though I could change this person's mind, then I take the time and I make the effort to do that. And I've had some success and some failure in that realm. But in general, if somebody thinks that you're, you know, that you're wrong, that your existence makes you not okay, it's really hard to change a person's mind about that. You can, you know... I don't think people are born with hatred, but when a person is 55 years old, you look at their profile online and, you know, it's like, you know, a lady with some cats and there's a lot of, you know, Christian paraphernalia around and stuff. And, and they're telling you that they would really prefer if you didn't talk about being gay because it makes them uncomfortable. 
I, I don't know if you're going to turn that around, you know, and, and so you just kind of focus on the people that aren't that way and hope that you, if you lead by example, you know, the great pleasure of my entire life, not just career, but my life has been when I've been able to travel to do public speaking engagements and you meet families. Like once I went to um, Grand Prairie, Alberta, really remote place. And after I did my speech at their like home show gathering, this guy came up to me with his daughter and he said, you know, I'm a gay dad. My partner couldn't come today. He's super sad that he couldn't because he loves you. And this is our daughter. And, you know, I wanted to share with you that here in where we live, you can imagine what it's like being gay dads here. It's not the easiest thing in the world, but we found a community. And for our daughter, you're the only person other than a sitcom character that is a written character that she ever sees on TV who's like us. Interesting. And I thought, holy shit, like that is... um, super amazing you know and also every time somebody says you know i am made uncomfortable by by the fact of what you are i remember that guy and his daughter and i think you know like the impact that you have well and it's inadvertent impact but it also i think is the result of courage you know i had the courage to put myself out there in the most authentic way possible um i made that decision the day that i decided to go from behind the camera to in front of the camera and the rest has been a really great experience by and large. You know, I would say that for, you know, it's really only about 10% of the time that you get bad feedback. Bring out the air. <laughs> no, that's incredible. I think having that kind of impact on someone inadvertent or not is so rewarding. I mean, it's a privilege to be able to do it. Yeah. Like it's a privilege to be able to, you know, I went to a, an event with a friend of mine and this woman came up to me and said, I just wanted to tell you that um, when I was going through cancer treatments at Princess Margaret Hospital, watching you and laughing along with you on those shows that you do with Sarah got me through it. And you think like, wow, you know, you go to work and you create this thing and you really hope it's going to help people. And you're kind of thinking it might help people pick a paint color. (laughs) But (laughs) But then it helps people live, survive something horrible. And it's a small part of that help. Obviously, the doctors were the bigger part of that. I'm not, <laughs> debatable, you know, debatable. I'm not, yeah, I'm not <laughs> pretending to be like, you know, some kind of shaman or miracle worker. But um, there is something very, very gratifying about being able to deliver that kind of experience for other people. So what would you, ta- what would you say to, in particular to young gay men who are in that phase where they don't know if they can openly express themselves because of fear of the vitriol yeah i would say protect yourself first because coming out is a very um individual thing and first and foremost you have to make sure that you have a space a safe space in which to do it and for some people that means leaving their town and going to new york and for some people that means talking to their pastor who might be open and and fair about it And for some people, that means just going directly to their parents because they know that that's a safe space. But I think we all know in our gut when we feel safe. And I think, you know, people who are being forced out of the closet or pushed out of the closet in my own community, our own community does that. We we do that to ourselves way more than we should. Um, And one time is way more than we should, but we do it a lot. Why do you think that? Why do you guys do that? I think that that's a, a symptom of people who feel as though... It's that thing of like, I had to suffer, so you have to suffer. It's the same thing that when your parents say like, you know, well, I had to walk barefoot in the snow three miles to go to school every day. Mm -hmm. And it's like, okay, chill. 
you know, like I know that you had to do that. That doesn't mean that I should have to. And the whole point of us marching in the streets for our rights and for marriage equality and all these things was so that younger LGBT people could live a safer and better life. So you can't resent them for, you know, being oblivious to it. And some gays do. And you also can't resent people for finding their safety before they come out of the closet. Mm. Um, and that can mean different things for different people. Like that kid that was in that amazing TV show um, just got outed this week as bisexual because everybody thought he was gay. And then he was seen with a girl holding hands and everybody was really railing on this kid about like, who are you? What are you doing? You, you owe us an explanation for this. And, you know, you can't represent a, the gay community and then date a woman. And are you lying and all this stuff? And to his great credit, I think his name is Kit something. To his great credit, he went after a little period of time, a rest, he went on Twitter and he basically said, for all of you who forced me out, uh, I am bisexual. Congratulations, you forced a 17-year-old kid out of the closet in a public way. I think that you have all missed the point of our show. Wow. And I was just like, holy yeah. shit. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Like, this kid who is not even 20 years old yet the is so maturity. much smarter yeah. than you know all of these people who are trying to get something out of that or punish a person because they didn't, you know, because they're supposed to be having a similar experience to what they had. Mm. So what do, you, what do you tell the community then? to like to move this forward in the right direction i think we have to i i mean i'm not an expert on that kind of thing i'm not sure. a psychologist i i'm just a person with his own experience but i'm also a person who's 52 years old i survived the aids pandemic i survived so far covid pandemic couple pandemics um i've seen a lot of people live and a lot of people die and a lot of suicide in the gay community and I, you know, and I've worked with a lot of organizations that address these issues, um, LGB LGBT homelessness, um, and also Casey House, who take care of uh, of our clients, our, our HIV um, and AIDS uh, uh, people who live with that. So, you know, I've seen a lot. And the one thing that I see more than anything else is that if we're able to remind each other of our humanity, we do a better job. And we all forget our humanity sometimes, you know, like you guys have yelled at somebody and then thought afterwards that shit, I shouldn't have done that. And it can be out of frustration at the bank because somebody just says that's not our policy. Or it can yeah. be somebody who literally like tries to start a bar fight with you or something. And you just think like, wow, I shouldn't have reacted that way if I'd thought about it and just tried to access that other person's humanity and my own in that moment, then maybe I would have done better in that situation. So I think as a community, we could do more of that. I, th I know that sounds so trite. Again, it sounds so self-help, but it really is at the basis of who we are as people and how we interact as human beings. You know, everything's so complicated. There's so much going on. It's so hard to stay on top of it and not get like depressed and angry. But at the end of the day, like I did this thing during COVID where I used to go around with my mask on like everybody was doing. And as I would go through like the checkout line or like see somebody like, getting takeout coffee or something, I would say to them, I'm smiling under here. You can't see it, but I'm smiling at you. And you could see their <laughs> eyes would scrunch up a little bit because they were smiling too behind their mask. And I said, you know, this is what the reality that we're living in, but I still need you to know that I'm smiling at you. So yeah. you have to speak your smile when you're wearing a mask. Yeah. And that was learned behavior, but it was also a choice. You know, you could also just go through life with dead eyes and a mask on and, you know, 
not smile at people or <laughs> remind them that you're smiling at them. It's incredible the power of a smile. Oh what my it change, God, it's unbelievable. Yeah, can change so much so quickly. Oh yeah. Paul McCartney smiled at me once. Oh yeah? On That's the way to the cool. men's room in a hotel in London and I was just like, that was great. <laughs> I hope you smiled back. I hope he's listening. Thanks, Paul. It was, was a good day for me. Um, can you tell us more about the work that you do? The like the some of the I guess we'll call it nonprofit work, but just sort of the the community work. So I work with different organizations at different times, but then there are some through lines. So um, I'm right now the chairperson of the board of directors of our family foundation, the Con Smythe Foundation, which took all of his money that he made in hockey and horse racing. And oh, there's a relation there. Yeah. Wow! Incredible! Oh I didn't know yeah. that. The straight guys always freak out, and they. <laughs> <laughs> Always. A hockey fan just freaked out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, so my family actually still runs that. And we give okay. small amounts of money where it would really have impact um, with a focus on sports and kids and medical charities that are local to our, to our world here in Toronto. Um, so there's that that I do. And then I also work with Friends of Ruby doing some mentorship programs. Friends of Ruby is the first standalone LGBT youth shelter in Toronto. Um, every night there are up, upwards of 2,000 kids on the street who That's are terrible. under 18. And of those kids, um, almost half of them identify as LGBT. In the former systems that existed where there was no dedicated shelter for them, there was a lot of the kind of abuse that they suffered in the places that they left in order to come to the streets of Toronto. So that was a big problem. And EGAL uh, worked really hard with um, fundraising for that initiative, and it's up and running, and it's a magnificent facility. Um, so that's uh, something that's really special to me. Casey House uh, is an organization I've been with for about 15 years, I think, now, and I serve on the foundation committee there. So we do fundraising um, and we talk, we advise the board of directors at Casey House. I'm not fancy enough or rich enough to be on the board of directors. <laughs> They've kept me on the foundation committee because they really like me and I make it fun for them, all these board meetings. And I'm always like swearing and, you know, telling funny stories about my life. Um, and they just released a movie, uh, the short movie. Mm -hmm. I watched that the other the other week. Yeah. It's really nice. Well, they're doing, so we are at Casey House, the, the people that run it and and get the messaging out are doing some really interesting, innovative things with fundraising around HIV AIDS. And I'm so proud that we've come to that point because it used to be like, you know, round tables with rubber chicken dinners and, you know, a host and everything. And that was one era. But Casey House has really evolved and moved into um, modern fundraising in a really interesting and innovative way with a little side order, maybe a kind of a healthy side order of activism. So we're smashing stigma. We're doing stunty kind of stuff, like manipulating, you know, old Friends episodes. So it looks like it's about somebody on the cast getting HIV. Uh, doing all kinds of things with really interesting partners to achieve something that feels like it's modern and that it is impactful, but that is also, you know, different. And I think that it's really working really well. Um, you know, we'll always have our marquee event, Art with Heart, which is yeah. Canada's premier art auction. But um, it's been a great uh, pleasure to be involved with them. And then I do some other stuff, like I host events. I have a policy that I don't get paid to do that. I usually, if it, if a um, an arts-based uh, entity asks me to host their event, 
I will always say like you can if you can pay an honorarium to Casey House hmm. um, nice. and funnel the money there. I kind of have this overarching policy that if I'm going to do it, I'm not going to do it for money. Right. I know that some people do make their living doing that for money, and I don't certainly don't judge that. But I make enough money doing my interior design work and my other media stuff that I can I can well afford to donate my time in that way. I'm not a rich person. I know I, li- I do live like one. I travel extensively, <laughs> mostly on other people's times. Um, I look my Instagram account makes me look so rich, but I'm really not. I live in a rental apartment. And I work really, really, really hard in long hours. Um, but the the asset that I have that I can bring to the table for these organizations is my energy, my time, and my access to hearts and minds. So as soon as I became a person who lived and worked in the public realm, one of the first things I did was go to organizations that spoke to my heartstrings and ask them if I could offer anything um, to help them do what they do. So it's a huge part of my of my life. It's the best part of my life, actually. And forgive my ignorance for asking this question. I just don't know. But is the HIV issue still as big as it's been in the past and because it doesn't get enough news coverage Mm -mm. no and one of the reasons that we went and moved into a more activist based fundraising kind of model um with a few stunts here and there is because it's very hard to keep hiv in the news cycle when i identified casey house as the place that i wanted to have an effect and an impact it was because at that time CANFAR was so well supported because CANFAR does AIDS research. They want to end AIDS. Obviously, everyone who works in the building at Casey House also wants to do that. But the harder ask for the money is to take care of people who already have it. Because they were seen as a lost cause previously. Now that people are living longer lives with HIV and we're looking at like medically, the medical science is now examining what is aging with HIV look like because we had a whole generation of men who were wiped out uh, and women, of course, too, but predominantly gay men who were wiped out by this disease. And so there was no real, you know, case study available for what does it look like if you've had HIV for 25 years, because nobody had it for 25 years. People only had it for like two years and then they died. Mm-hmm. So there's all that really interesting, juicy stuff that that Casey House is super involved in. But the thing about HIV is that it is still a very infectious disease. Um, there are great prophylactic drugs. Um, so PrEP is amazing. Um, but you know, when you take any kind of pharmaceutical drug, it's not ideal. What would be ideal is to end AIDS and to find a cure for AIDS. Um, so it's a great question because, you know, what it looks like now is not what it was then. So when in 1988, when Casey house was built, um, it was the first standalone AIDS hospice in North America which is a very fascinating fact. When you think that it should have been in San Francisco or New York, which were, yeah. were the twin epicenters of the disease at that time, it was Toronto, it was June Callwood, the famous writer um, and activist who actually initiated that. At the time, it was mostly gay men who were dying. And it was artists and ballet dancers and impactful cultural people. Now, our clients are people who are merged with other kinds of communities, the mental health community, the addiction community, mental health addiction, and, um, you know, the housing issue. Uh, People on the streets are all more our clientele now. It's not famous ballet dancers as much as it was. And it's not gay people as much as it was. It's every kind of people. Um, This is the nature of pandemics. You know, you can always say, like, it's a gay problem. It's a gay problem. But eventually it won't be. 
and the next pandemic that affects only another certain segment of the population, you know, oh, it's a it's a black problem or it's a Jewish problem or it's a women only problem. These things find a way into other pockets of our collective culture and, and humanity. So, you know, we learned a lot of lessons, I think, from the AIDS pandemic, some of which were applied to our reaction to COVID, some of which were not. You know, there was a lot in the beginning of like, oh, it's the old weak people. It's the nursing homes. You know, it's people who take cruises. Fuck them. You know what I mean? (laughs) It was cruise ships and nursing homes. And everybody was just like, well, it's not my problem. I'm a 32-year-old, you know, gym bot, you know, who is, you know, a vegan. So I'm not going to get COVID. In the beginning, that happened all over again. And all of us. Yeah, well, in the beginning, there was a lot of a lot of weird theories about who can get it and who can't get it. Oh my God. All of us AIDS survivors were just like, holy shit, here we go again. Mm -hmm. You know, and we were all like hunkering down and protect, you know, we knew exactly what to do. Like when you're an 18 year old, which I was in 1988 and somebody tells you, you can't have sex or you're going to die. Imagine telling that to an 18 year old male. Mm. That was horrible. Like, you know, and then we have all these, excuse me, fuckers running around at the beginning of COVID saying they didn't want to wear a mask. I was like, what you're being asked to do isn't hard, you idiot. Mm. Try not having sex with anybody. (laughs) That's not, that's not fair. And it's not easy. Perspective. Wearing a mask comparatively was nothing. Cakewalk. So easy. So I want to, I want to sort of go back a second here. Your family foundation, mm-hmm. the Con Smythe Foundation. I knew you were bring it back to the <laughs> hunting stuff. To, it's okay. It's okay. No, no, no. It's been a, I, my <laughs> whole I, life has I, been about this. It's no, no, okay. no. But oh, there's a legitimate. <laughs> there's yeah, a legitimate yeah. you question. You can ask anything. <laughs> given the name, yeah, and given hockey culture, mm-hmm. what? How much more work needs? To, like, I don't even know what kind of questions to ask here. How much more work needs to be done to make hockey more inclusive? So you know what because I mean? Because it's still so toxic. I know. And so and toxic mas- masculinity is not something that is the exclusive purview of straight white men, you know, or men in general. It is also something that is prevalent in the gay community. Um, there's a lot of toxic masculinity. All of our body image stuff and all of our, um, you know, culture, gym culture and sex culture is all based around this very toxic masculinity. So what I'm going to do to answer that question is I'm going to defer that question to somebody who you need to have on this podcast, okay. a guy by the name of Brock McGillis. Okay. Do you know who that is? I don't. So Brock McGillis is a very good friend of mine. He is the first ever out NHL player. Okay. He has done extensive work across all of North America and abroad in lecturing and speaking about uh, toxic masculinity within the hockey community and mm-hmm. how to fix it and, and how to go about doing that. So he and I have had many long conversations about that. Um, hockey is a very, really complex thing for Canadians, I think. Um, you know, it's this institution, it's this thing that is so revered by so many people. But it is, there is toxic masculinity, there's racism, there's, um, you know, it's not inclusive. Uh, mm-hmm. There's there's misogyny. There are so many layers to it that are not good. Mm-hmm. And then there's so many things that are good. And so like anything, yeah. it's complex. 
and I'm certainly not expert in it. You know, I never played hockey. I grew up with the surname very proudly. Um, you know, I think the achievements of my progenitors are amazing. Um, and to, to live in a family that, that values some of the greatest things about sports, um, you know, teamwork and camaraderie and brotherhood and fellowship in those ways, uh, was a really great way to be brought up and to be raised. But then as I got older and as I saw a little bit more of the world, you know, I got kicked out of Upper Canada College and I went to Jarvis Collegiate and suddenly everything was different colors and different cultures and different experiences. And I very quickly realized I liked it better there than where I was. Maybe because it was different, but maybe also because it was just actually better, intrinsically better because it was more diverse. And so, you know, I lived in, in the Silver Spoon sort of white world of Upper Canada College there was one black student there when I was there and two Indian students, two Southeast Asian students and a handful of Asian students and everybody else was white and had a Canadian establishment, you know, um, blue chip, like red letter name. Mm -hmm. You know, it was Eaton's and Rogers and like all the families. And, you know, I learned as soon as I left that environment that that is a, a gilded cage in the sense that it's a cage you know, and I love that metaphor of the gilded cage. Again, it's a bit of a cliche. Sorry, Cher. Um, <laughs> but I love that metaphor because a gilded cage is a cage. You are still a prisoner of something because mm. you're not, um, your thoughts and your experiences aren't as expansive as they would be. And leaving that environment to explore other worlds um, and other neighborhoods and other experiences uh, led me into lifelong friendships that I have now from people of all kinds of different diverse cultures that taught me everything I know about being a better person. And then also, you know, like it led you into experiences that you should have, you know, being inside of abortion clinics with friends who needed that service. Um, so when things like the overturning of Roe v. Wade come up, I have a personal connection to how wrong that is mm -hmm. because I was there. I yeah. saw how important that service is to real women who were really special and important to me and aspects of privacy and issues of of race and all of those things were introduced to me outside of the world that I was raised in which n n through no fault of my parents I mean my parents actually had a really diverse friend group but the schools that I was in at the time were not um they were forwarding limited. I mean you were just you were in a bubble yeah. you know and I don't think that I could have led the life that I have lived, which has been incredibly full and privileged in a different way. You know, like I had all of that privilege. And then I went into this incredible life of travel and experience and, and, and diverse uh, experiences that have given me way more privilege. It, it's interesting how we define that, you know. It's incredible. But yeah, like I like... So. I've had a good time. <laughs> if I die tomorrow, I I no longer fear flying because I think if, if the plane goes down today, I've had a really it's good. It's an run. irrational fear. I've had a good run. Fear of flying is irrational. Totally. Yeah. Why? I used to, I used to work because for the chances of you dying. You, literally, you're you're more likely to die driving on the way to the airport. Which sounds like people say that, but it's true because planes are not built to crash. The ones you hear are like a big ones, but they don't they don't really. The numbers are so small mm -hmm. that you're not going to. It's actually, that's actually true. Yeah. And, you know, I did some work for a former president of Air Canada in uh, England when he moved there. 
and I worked with Sarah on this project and we used to get flown back and forth and, and we were working on this big thing and I was traveling with him once and I said, I was really nervous. And he, he said, I can take that away from you, but I can only take it away. I can't take it away from you for the whole flight, but I can give you everything but eight minutes. And I was like, what are you saying? And he said, the chances of you crashing after the first eight minutes after takeoff become so exponentially impossible that if you can sit there and look at your watch and get through the first eight minutes, you're so safe. <laughs> and I was like, that I will take. Yeah. I will take that, that little win. And so now if I'm on, you know, a seven or eight hour flight yeah. after the first eight minutes, I'm like, okay. Yeah, I'll have two glasses of wine <laughs> and now a, we're good. Now we're yeah, good. <laughs> and maybe a little bit of a lorazepam. <laughs> <laughs> so you you have a new partnership now. Yeah, with Urban Barn. I do. Yeah. Tell us about that. So that was my incredible manager, Chris Brenton, who has Uncharted Management. He's also Jan Arden's manager, um, and he manages a few other people. Um, he's pretty picky about who he works with, but we were friends first. And, uh, <laughs> so and you Jan, had an in. Yeah, Jan introduced us. And um, my former agent, uh, Lalana Novakovic, who's a titan and a legend in the field, was kind of narrowing her client list down. And since I was no longer working together with Sarah and she would keep Sarah, I kind of went to her and said, maybe you know, if you want me to give you an out and sort of lighten the load, um, Chris is interested in working with me. So she kind of handed me over to him. He very quickly came up with a whole bunch of ideas for things that I could do. Um, and one of them was um, a line of products with mm -hmm. Urban Barn. And he said to me, you know, quite honestly, at first he was like, do you do you want this to be your first ever collaboration or do you need to revisit this opportunity after you've done something that's like super expensive? And I said to him, you know, that's a fair question given the level at which my interior design practice functions. I mean, we're working for very high net worth people, but also there's always been this huge adjacent component to my career, which was television makeover shows where we don't have $65,000 rugs in those rooms. Yeah. We have products that are from companies like Urban Barn, who historically have always been there for us whenever we needed product. It's a Canadian company. It has bricks and mortar uh, presence all the way across the country. I could reach as many people as with any other entity, but I could do it at a price point that felt like everybody could participate. Mm -hmm. And so I was actually really delighted with the idea and the prospect of this. And then we went into the process and it was like, I'm completely fucked for other relationships now because it was so easy. I, you know, I, I gave this little speech at the launch party the other night and I said, you know, I think we can all agree it was very hard to hook up during the pandemic. However, Chris suggested that I hook up with Urban Barn. We flirted online a little bit, then we hooked up and it was good. And then we did it again and we did it again. And as always happens with multiple hookups, we had 22 babies. There's 22 <laughs> wanted children that are these items. That's a capsule collection. It's limited uh, edition. Uh, when it's gone, it's gone. And I thought, this is how I want to do this. I want to reach as many people as possible. What if I never get to do it again? If it doesn't sell, I might never get to do it again. So I'd rather do it here at this price point for everybody. Yeah. And then if it's super successful, maybe I'll get to do it again. So that's how it happened and the design process was amazing the partners that they have that made the things listen to me the design team you know did all the things I wanted to do I'm vegan have been for many years so we didn't want to use real leather so we have vegan leather we have recycled metals 
um, and materials. We have natural cottons and fabrics that are, you know, really beautiful. And, you know, everything was done by me through the lens of the Urban Bar and Creative team. So it was a really true collaboration, and I love it. I, I loved doing it. Um, I'm sure it's not that easy for other people. <laughs> I mean, I think Urban Barn just made it so easy for yeah. me. Um, but it's a credit to them because they'd never done this either. Sure. They'd never brought a name designer in to collaborate with them on a small collection. So for me, it was like this thing of like, wow, you know, we're both kind of flying blind here. Mm. If we fail, we fail together. And if we're successful, we're successful together. Nice. And so I guess that kind of brings us back to trust. You know, you have to go into relationships with trust. And sometimes you're rewarded and sometimes you aren't. But if you're not taking the chance, you're not living your life. So Absolutely. I'm, I'm surviving and thriving with Urban Barn. And who knows? Like, I, I hear that sales are going really well. A soft it's launch good. was late October. Official launch was like last week. Um, I hear that it's tracking well, but... We'll see. Maybe I'll get to do it again. <laughs> well, on that note, thank you for trusting us with your story. Thank you. And uh, for sharing an incredible journey. I'm really excited to see where this goes. And uh, let's keep in touch. I think I think we we'd love to have you if you're if you're willing to have you back in the studio sometime in the future to to talk about the next endeavor of of your life. He's, I, he I is would the do hockey fans. Take you up on that, that offer. <laughs> yeah. Bring yeah. him in too. Well, get in touch with Brock or yeah. I'll connect the two of yeah, you. Yeah, please. Uh, the three of you together um, because he's awesome. And this has been awesome. And thank you. And I would come back anytime. Thank I, you. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, pleasure. Amazing. Thank you everybody for listening. Tommy Smythe. Thank Tommy you. Smythe. Take care. <laughs>